Hey guys, welcome back to Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. The Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia rank as many people's favorite epic tales. These fantasy classics have stirred the imaginations and inspired good action in millions of people around the world. As such powerful stories, they are evident examples of how stories play a role in our virtue formation. I'm glad to welcome Lou Marcos back to the show to help us to understand the virtue-forming power of stories and how these books inspire such virtue through discussing his book, On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue in Tolkien and Lewis. Lou and I begin our discussion by talking about the shaping experiences of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and why these two men continue to be so influential today. He explains why stories play such an important element in our lives. We finish off by examining the archetypes and classical virtues one can learn through The Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia. Lou Marcos is a professor of English and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. He is the author of many books, including Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek and Roman Mythology Through Christian Eyes, Ancient Voices, An Insider's Look at Classical Greece, From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, Atheism on Trial, and Restoring Beauty, The Good, the True, and the Beautiful in the Writings of C.S. Lewis. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you can get all of the latest content sent directly into your inbox. Visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage. Lastly, if you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review and shared this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star review on Spotify and write a review on Apple Podcasts. This will only take a minute of your time, and when you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Lou Marcos. Lou, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back on, Aaron. Well, I'm really glad you're back on. Thank you for making the time. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Really enjoyed talking with you last time you were on here and been looking forward to this one. Like I was telling you before we got started, I've been reading your book that we're talking about today on the shoulders of hobbits and loving it. Full disclosure, not finished. But, uh, but but eating it up so far, it's really great. So you thanks to, for coming you, back. You didn't, you didn't get to the vice part, so we don't have to talk about vice. We'll focus on virtue. <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Um, but before we we get really you know, into the directly into the uh, content of the book, talk to us about. And I think you're one of the best people to talk about this. Why is it that Tolkien and Lewis are so influential in uh, in our culture, but even and especially among Christians today? It's amazing. Now, first of all, especially Lewis, but Tolkien as well, have this way of bringing together reason and imagination. So much of American apologetics is about reason. So we've got the great Lee Strobel. We've got the great Josh McDowell. uh, These are Chuck Colson. These are people that are 
you know, much more logical, systematic thinkers. And they're really, really good apologists, William Lane Craig, all of these folks, right? But Lewis and Tolkien brought to it a, a burst of imagination, a sort of literary side that enlivens everything. So it, it appeals to the whole person. And, you know, Lewis, again, he helped us to see that, yes, you're a Christian. You don't have to check your mind at the outside of the church door, right? So reason's important, but we don't have to be afraid of the imagination that we can take these rational ideas, these apologetics, this logic, and incarnate it in fiction, in imagination, in story. After all, the virtues were taught to people for time immemorial through stories. That's mm. how you taught virtue. And you also taught vice, too. I mean, one of the reasons the Roman Empire was great uh, is they grew up on stories of the great Roman Republican heroes. Livy tells us all these stories. They grew up the, 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 before that. The, the Athenian democracy was built on them reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, the stories of the great Trojan soldiers and heroes and whatnot. That's how you reach a person. And, you know, Aaron, uh, you probably remember, I don't know, it's been about 30 years ago when uh, uh, William uh, uh, William uh, Bennett, who was the uh, Secretary of Education under Reagan, uh, wrote a mm -hmm. book called The Book of Virtues, in which yep. he took the virtues and illustrated them in stories from Greek history, Roman history, the Bible, American, all different places, right? Fairy tales. And I remember when that book came out, I said, you know what? This book coming out now is like this super original, amazing idea. But if it came out 100 years ago, people would have said, well, duh, that's what we've always done. But we mm -hmm. need it. Thank God to remind us that the way you embody virtue and pass it down to the next generation is through story. And that's why the politically correct fairy tales they're coming out with are unbelievably destructive. Uh, they're mm. our fairy tales and twisting them. Uh, and that's just uh, very bad. <laughs> uh, if we want to have a virtuous, morally self-regulating citizenship coming in the next generation. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the people who are writing these uh, the new fairy tales and so on, they understand the formative power of stories. That's right. They know. They know what they're doing. That's a good point, and it's kind of mm -hmm. scary. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's a good thing that the the newer ones, by and large, are a lot more boring than the old they really ones. You know, I just got to say, they are. yeah, yeah. And and yeah. they are the ones that are actually too preachy. <laughs> <The> <laughs> yeah, preachy. It's completely embodied. It's it's organic. We might say. But there, they don't really care. They just want mind control. And these yeah. kids, I mean, at such a young age, they're just throwing this stuff at them. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, everybody attacks Disney because they're the big people, but they haven't done that much yet. But it's, it's much bigger around and stories and things like that. And we, we do need to be careful uh, mm -hmm. and watch what our kids are learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the power of their imagination uh, has, has uh, inspired people. Uh, the, the power of Tolkien and Lewis's imagination. It's all they had a good imagination, but you know they wrote these incredible stories. What is it that that shaped them and their imaginations to write these incredible epics like Lord of the Rings and yeah. Chronicles of Narnia? What is it that shaped them? I mean, they they, they both grew up, of course, studying Greco-Roman mythology, but they also loved Norse mythology, sometimes even more so. Right? They grew up on what were called the Blue Fairy Book and the Red Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. And I raised my kids in wonderful stories. That's where that's where um, Tolkien first read the story of Fafnir and the dragon and all that sort of stuff that, that became the ring cycle in Wagner, though 
Tolkien wasn't a fan of the ring cycle. He did his own stuff with that material. But they grew up. And I really think the more I study it, that, that one of the reasons Americans especially love to go to Narnia and Middle Earth is it's a medieval place. Now, we're taught that we're supposed to hate the Middle Ages, especially if we're Protestant, right? Oh, no, no, that's backward, that's unenlightened, that's dark, that's superstitious. But I think that we have a yearning for it. Why do people keep going to the Renaissance Festival? You ever go, uh, Aaron, to a Renaissance Festival? Mm, no, I haven't had the chance, but I, okay. everyone I, I know who's gone to it loves it. I love it. And I, I, I go every year with my kids as they were growing up. And one year I suddenly realized something. You know what? Most of the people that I'm with, not the people that came with me, but the people around me uh, in, in the fair here, most of them would disagree with me completely on almost everything from politics to religion to marriage to sexuality, and yet they're here. Many of them are very, very liberal, progressive people, and yet they're here at a fair that celebrates medieval values that they would say they hate, but they can't help it when they go there because mm. our society is desperately in need of a sense of hierarchy so we know who we are how we relate to other people you know what i love about the costumes at the medieval festival you can tell a man from a woman can't you okay <laughs> crazy transgender stuff I mean, there's a man okay, there's a bore wench whatever there, there, there's a man you know and, and even when they're wearing a skirt from scotland it's very clearly masculine right mm -hmm. I mean, whether they want to admit it or not we're attracted to a place where there is meaning and purpose where there's a sense of right and wrong, good and evil, virtue and vice, where there's something worth fighting for, where we can look up to and respect the king and stop this nonsense about everybody being the same. Okay, all men are created equal. There's only two ways in which we are and should be equal, before the law and because we're all made in God's image. But other than that, equality is a very bad virtue that flattens everything out and is not particularly good. Now, we're lucky we have uh, equality before the law, which is good, um, but in other ways, it's not very good. It, 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 it brings about a sort of lowest common denominator world. It robs us of our distinctiveness. It robs us from the joy of actually looking up to someone and respecting them and even obeying them and the joy of being a leader for someone else. So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, um, uh, you're probably familiar with Michael Ward, who teaches as part of our apologetics here at Houston Baptist, and he wrote a book called Planet Narnia. And he showed, very powerful argument, that the seven chronicles of Narnia are linked to the seven medieval planets and their influences. Now, Lewis is not doing this in a doctrinaire way, but what he's saying is, when you go to Narnia and you go to the seven books, you are experiencing, again, incarnationally, experiencing the influence of the moon or the sun or Jupiter or Mars or Venus. Those are the seven medieval planets. So, there's something attractive there, and we may not even know why, but we want to go to a place where there is, again, good guys and bad guys, and mm -hmm. something worth fighting for, something to respect and look up to. And I think we find that both in Narnia and Middle Earth. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I, I was kind of surprised when I wrote On the Shoulders of Hobbits that there weren't actually that many books that were putting Lewis and Tolkien next to each other and looking for parallels. There actually weren't that many. Uh, yeah. So let's do this because they're, they're not exactly the same, but in most of the key areas, there are powerful overlaps. And even though Tolkien was not a big fan of, of Chronicles of Narnia, he thought they were too uh, allegorical, which is not even really true. Uh, he didn't like the way they mixed things together. But still, at the core of value and virtue, there are a great deal of overlaps. So we're working in the same Judeo-Christian and Greco-Roman Norse worldview, 
And again, people are attracted to it. Mm, yeah. Now, what about the experiences of their lives? What, what, what did they experience in their lives uh, as young men, both serving in World War I, uh, through their experience through friendships and so on, that you think influenced the stories that they wrote? One thing is a lot of people don't realize that both of them were orphans. Now, Tolkien, hmm. you know, what was it? His father died when he was uh, four or five, and then his mother died when he was about 12. So he was a complete orphan by then, and he was actually raised by a priest, uh, Father Francis Morgan. And Lewis lost his mother when he was nine, uh, and his father didn't die till he was about 30, about the time he became a theist, believer in God. But after his mother died, he kind of lost his father. Because his father had a hard time handling it, and his father sent him off to these British boarding schools that he hated and despised. And so both of them were orphans in the storm, sort of cast adrift. And for both of them, friendship was an incredibly important thing. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And they both loved to create groups where they would come together and share their passions. And, of course, all of that leads up to the Inklings, the great Inkling. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they that they both kind of came together uh, to form, and they also loved you know mythology. They they both now Lewis was the one that talked about joy, how he read things and it just swept him away. Tolkien doesn't talk about it as much, but it's there everywhere. Tolkien also is a is a dreamer, right? And he got really mad when people accused fantasy of being escapist, and he said, "Well, you know what? If you're a political prisoner, then you should want to escape. Escape is not always a bad thing, right? If you're you know." If you're a prisoner, why do you want to sit around and only talk about prison walls? That's basically modern uh, you know, novels that are so depressing, mm. deterministic, and everybody's destroyed. Like, why yeah. do I want, to, I want to break from it? The, the first, what is it? The, the first duty of a prisoner is to escape. Okay, we're not talking about some murderer that's put in prison. We're talking about a prisoner of war or a political prisoner, the ones that are in a way unjustly there. And they want to escape and break out and do that. And Lewis and Tolkien never lost that love for fantasy and for fairy tales and, and for the kind of courage and the kind of virtues that were celebrated there. See, Lewis, I, 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 I hate this, Aaron. There are sometimes Christians who say, oh, I don't want my kids reading fantasy. It's going to lead them astray. Lewis said, the real books that lead you astray are what Lewis called back then uh, school uh, stories. And in these school stories, it's the kid that gets picked on, and then suddenly he's the captain of the team, and he gets back on everyone. And Lewis says these school stories are terrible. They, 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 they fill you up with pride and wanting to have envy and spite, get back at people, and all this horrible mean girls kind of stuff. Whereas a true fantasy, Lewis says, when you're put in a true fantasy world, a like Middle Earth or, 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 or Narnia, it's not going to breed pride. It breeds humility. It breeds wonder. It breeds awe. It breeds gratitude and thankfulness. And I mean, but, but again, I, I just so many Christians, of course, they're afraid, oh, magic, witches, all that sort of stuff. But a real fairy realm sort of takes us out of our own and allows us, the, the world is re-enchanted. And that's mm -hmm. because we've become very jaded. Starting after World War I, People have gotten very jaded, very cynical, very uh, um, sarcastic. Uh, uh, you know, everything is to be seen through. We're wised mm. up. We're not going to be fooled by anything. You know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, whereas Narnia and, and uh, Middle Earth revive in us that childlike sense of wonder and awe. 
And I think people feel that whether they realize it or not, when they visit uh, the fantasy worlds of Lewis and Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. And I think whenever we were talking earlier about, uh, or whenever you were talking about the, the draw that people have to uh, stories that have medieval settings or, or themes, though they've been taught and assumed that they're supposed to despise everything and reject everything from those times. What I was thinking was, I, I, I think it's the enchantment. I think yeah. they're drawn to this world of the, the knights and the shining armor and, the, and all, all these different things, uh, not just because, I mean, yeah, those things are fun, right? They're, they're, yeah. they're cool, but because they were part of an enchanted world. Right. And we, we live in such a time of, like you said, uh, cynicism and so on. And we live in a disenchanted world. There's a longing to recover that. Like, there, uh, yeah, yeah uh, you know, it wasn't, I might be stealing this from somebody. I, I can't remember who's, but, um, you know, it's like waking up from a dream and not quite remembering the dream, but still having the, the, the feeling of it. Is that something Lewis said? I mean, he talks yeah. about that, and he, yeah. even Dante talks about that when he has this vision of God. It, you know, it's almost like you have a dream, and then you wake up, and all the details are gone, but you still remember the emotion and the power of it. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's just it's just there. It's, it's just out of out of our grasp. Yeah, it, yeah, and, it, and I think people experience that, and that's what's yeah. drawing them to these stories. It, 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 it's what Tolkien called, coined the word the "you catastrophe." That's E-U. Mm-hmm. When, is, is, the, is the Greek word that means good, like eugenics or euphonious or whatever. EU is good, and catastrophe, of course, is a downturn. So the EU catastrophe is a happy ending that comes graciously, miraculously out of it. In that case, it's uh, uh, basically a Frodo fails. I will not destroy the ring. It's mine. And then, crazy enough, up jumps uh, a golem, bites it off him, and then falls into the you know cracks of doom. And it's, it's hmm. wonderful. It's, it's like the resurrection coming out of Good Friday, out of the crucifixion. And it gives us a, a, a catch of breath, you know, poignant as grief, as he says. Uh, it takes us out of ourselves. And, you know, for Lewis, he was drawn to theism by experiences he called joy, right? He, he um, uh, when he was very young, he had toothache and his brother uh, took a biscuit tin, turned it upside down, put little bits of, of moss and fern and made a toy garden. And he showed it to Lewis. And Lewis said, when he looked on it, he was suddenly swept away to cool, moist, green places. It, it triggered something deep inside of him and set off a longing for something beyond the natural world. And Lewis and Tolkien both experienced that, particularly in Norse mythology. Uh, in many ways, their, their friendship was cemented by their shared love of Norse mythology. Because when they met, Lewis was not a believer. He was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Tolkien helped lead him on the road to faith. But they became friends because of their love of medieval Norse, Beowulf, all of those things. In fact, Lewis, when he met Tolkien, a lot of people don't know Tolkien was six years older than Lewis. We always imagine them the same age. Uh, And Tolkien was already established. He was one of the youngest professorships in his time. Even today, uh, he was pretty young to become a full professor. And Lewis joined a group that Tolkien had started called the Coal Biters or the Coal Batars. And the Coal Biters were the Vikings who hovered around the fire to tell stories, the Norse sagas. And they sat so close to the fire, it was like they were biting the coals. So they were the Coal Biters. And Lewis joined the group and they got together every week to read the Norse sagas out loud in the original language. And they only stopped after they read them all. So they went through all of them. And then in some ways, the English comes later. Uh, and I don't think everybody in that group was necessarily believe. Well, Lewis wasn't a believer yet. Uh, but they had that shared love. Lewis called it northernness. Uh, that, mm. 
that 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 you know cold, distant northern places that attracted him. Uh, and and again, he he loved that sort of stuff, and Tolkien did as well, even more. Mm. And so, how did that that shared love eventually bring Lewis to Christianity? Did well, did that shared love play a role, or did it just lay the foundation for a friendship that led him to Christ? Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of did both. I mean, it ultimately laid the foundation. But, you know, again, almost all your listeners know that Lewis was an atheist. But what a lot of people realize is Lewis go directly from atheism to Christianity. First, he became a theist, a believer in God. But once he believed in God, it took him another maybe year and a half before he came to believe that Jesus was the son of God. Now, what was holding him back? I've got a new movie new book called The Myth Made Fact, reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes. And it's based on this story. So Lewis was a big fan of, uh, of uh, a book called The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Now, that's very similar to some of the books written by, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the Power of Myth and uh, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. His name just went out of my oh. mind. Gosh, now, I'm, now I won't be able to think of it. I know. It's one of my, anyway, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah he, had a, he had a big influence on yeah. uh, on George Lucas when he wrote the you know the original uh, Star Star Trek. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Campbell. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Campbell. Yeah, influence on Star Wars because Joseph Campbell, like this guy James Fraser, and to a certain extent Jordan Peterson as well, who's one of my heroes. He's not a believer yet, but he's on the road, right? Uh, much, much closer than, you know, th those other guys, okay? I mean, you know, you know, neither one of them, Joseph Campbell, neither one of them were believers. Um, they were more like Jung or something. Now, Jordan Peterson loves Carl Jung. He loves Nietzsche, too. But he's on the road to faith because he's understanding the archetypes. Okay, what these people do, that we can call them a comparative mythologist or a comparative anthropologist, they look at all the different primitive people groups and look at all their stories and rituals and try to find connections. That's what I love. You know, I love reading that stuff. Mm -hmm. And in, in the Golden Bough, uh, Fraser identified something he called the Corn God or the Corn King. And all across the ancient world is this strange story of a sort of demigod who comes to Earth and and lives and then dies some kind of violent death and dies but returns. Now it's not an actual resurrection. It's a seasonal cycle myth of life, death, and rebirth that is played out again year after year. So if you are Egyptian, your corn king is called Osiris. If you're Greek, you call him Adonis or Bacchus. If you're Norse, you call him Balder. If you are Babylonian, you call him Tammuz. If you're Persian, you call him Mithras. These are all stories of the dying and rising God tied to the cycle. Now, tied to the cycle of the wheat, but British people call wheat corn. It's very confusing. So it's called the Corn King, but it's really the Wheat King. Now, uh, uh, what's his name? Stephen King had a lot of fun by writing a book called The Children of the Corn. And he's playing on the Corn King myth, but it's really corn because he's out in the Midwest, right? But oh. <laughs> it's a thing that he does there. Because uh, remember, the ancient, there, there, was no, there was no corn maize in Europe until Columbus's time, right? They only had wheat back then. Corn comes from the New World from here along with potatoes and tomatoes and all the other things that came, tobacco and cocoa, you know, chocolate and all that. But anyway, so Lewis, like a lot of people, figured, well, Jesus is just the Hebrew version of the corn king. What's, what, what do I care about some rabbi that died 2,000 years ago? And then this was that crowning moment uh, when Lewis was 32 years old. 
uh, uh, he and Tolkien and, and another man uh, were walking along Addison's Walk. Addison's Walk is on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, and it's a beautiful tree-lined path with a, a deer sort of in the center. And as they walked around and around, Tolkien said to Lewis, you know, Lewis Jack, as they called him, Jack, did you ever wonder, maybe the reason Jesus sounds like a myth is because he's the myth that became true, the myth that was made fact. I mean, think about it, Aaron. We're all made in the image of the same God. God has put in us the same yearnings and desires. And in the Gentile world, right, only the Jews had direct revelation in, in the scriptures, in, in the uh, prophets. But in the pagan world, God didn't ignore them. They still had general revelation. They studied the cycles of nature. They studied conscience. They studied reason. They studied imagination. They told stories. And it's amazing that so many of them came up with this story, this longing. And so what, what Tolkien is trying to tell Lewis is that Jesus is the historical corn king. He not only fulfilled all the Old Testament law and prophets, he also fulfilled the highest yearnings of the pagan peoples. So I, I, just think about this, Aaron, right? Can you ima imagine if Jesus came in, and yes, he fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies, but he said nothing to the pagans. The rest of humanity looked at him, and this, what is this? I've got no, no intimation of this is nothing. But no, it turns out that Jesus fulfills their desire, their inner desire for God to come, the death, the resurrection, the, the cycle. They were looking for this, and so Jesus is the true corn king. He is the savior of all the nations, so, or the desire of all the nations were fulfilled in him, and that's what finally, about a week later, he accepted Christ and became a Christian. He understood what was going on, and it's interesting that in uh, Prince Caspian, <coughs> um, with Aslan, the, the the Christ of Narnia, the Lion King, who does he bring into that book? Bacchus. Bacchus is one of those seasonal myths of life, death, and rebirth. Bacchus is linked to the cycle of the gra grape, the way Persephone and Demeter are linked to the cycle of the wheat, the grain, the corn, and you know, mm. together that communion in a sort of odd way. So Lewis and Tolkien were fascinated by these archetypal myths that appear throughout ancient civilization, but do not find their ultimate fulfillment until Christ, the true corn king, dies and rises in real time and space. Yeah. Yeah, so Lewis, certainly not just as a professor uh, or lover of literature, but also because as a part of his spiritual journey, loved and appreciated the power of stories. In the introduction to your book, you talk about how uh, stories are necessary for virtue formation. I know we already talked about this a little bit, but can we just can you just elaborate on that some more? Why is it uh, that stories play such an important role? And maybe can you just help people to understand what what you mean by that 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 it plays a, a role in virtue formation? If that's new for them to hear, a, a lot of Christian apologists uh, love to use the word meta narrative. Now it's really funny because meta narrative was coined by postmodern people who denied that one existed. But it's okay. Yeah. Right? Meta narrative needs meta, like metaphysical above. Meta narrative is the overarching narrative that runs through everything, right? For a Christian, 
we are actually living in a story, a story of creation, fall, redemption, reconciliation, restoration, and finally glorification. It's a, it's a story that, that just goes through, and we're part of that story. Don't the great stories never end, Mr. Frodo? Well, they, they, don't, they don't, they go on, right? We fall out of them, other fall, but we're part of a story. And one thing I'd like to share, Aaron, you know, Christians, we, we, we debate, all right, are they six literal days or six figure days? How, how old is the earth? How long have we been around? Now, it doesn't bother me that maybe the earth has been around years. I think it's ludicrous to say that mankind has been around for more than 10, 20,000 years. We, I'm just sorry, just look at the evidence, look at culture. So we haven't been around. And you know what? Okay, the Christian story obviously begins with creation, right, and the fall. But God's very direct working in human history really begins with Abraham. And Abraham is about 2000 BC. So Abraham is 4,000 years ago. That means if you live to the age of 80, which is very possible these days, if you live to 80, your lifespan will make up 2% of that 4,000 years between Abraham and us. So we are very much, even if the earth is 14, you know, 4 billion years, I don't care. The, the story that God is working out, our life, even if you died at age 40, that's still 1%. That's really, really significant. This is a very significant number. Um, you, you might vote on the lottery for that, unless you're, you know, Baptist like me. Um, and I sound like I've been drinking here. I'm sorry, I got hiccups. Uh, but so, <laughs> so uh, but the, um, so what I'm getting at is that we are part of the story that started with Abraham, and it's only 4,000 years ago, and we need to understand that. Now, you teach virtue through stories because we identify with those stories. The stories of you know, the Old Testament is filled with so many stories that are object lessons for us that we should learn to be careful. We read about Abraham and Jacob, and of course, what's wonderful in the Bible stories is nothing is airbrushed. We see the glory and we see that the terrible choices that people like uh, like uh, Samson make, the terrible things they lead to. Even David, you know, does a terrible, terrible decision. And although God forgives him, what does that do to his family? It leads to chaos in his family, with one brother raping his sister, and then that girl's full brother killing his half brother. And David doesn't do anything about it because he's lost his moral authority after what he did. So. We need to understand that we're part of a story. I, the way I teach my students is WWJD, what would Jesus do? That, that's important. But I also want you to ask yourself, what would Achilles do? What would Odysseus do? What would Antigone do? What would Frodo do? Right? Uh, we want to participate in these stories because it makes it real and because we are literally part of a story that's going on. And right now it's... I mean, I don't know when Jesus is going to return, but right now, between between uh, uh, Abraham and Jesus is about 2,000 years, and between Jesus and us is about 2,000 years, right? A.D. and B.C., Jesus right there in the middle. So we are part of that story, and by reading it, and, and also just practically speaking, Aaron, um, if somebody preaches to you, you shut off. But if somebody reads a story— you're drawn into the story, and you're more likely to learn and participate and be challenged by it. So just at a 
practical level, that's how you pass down to the next generation and challenge them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's interesting just to reflect on what does it mean anthropologically? Um, and what does it mean theologically that, that we as human beings are identify so deeply just on a, on an existential level with stories and why they're so powerful. And what does that say about, about us and God? I just think it's interesting to think about, you well, know, God is an author, right? God is an author. We are creatures, right? But we are also, uh, you know, Tolkien uh, like to call us sub creators, right? The reason we make is because we're made in the image of a maker. And so it's natural to us to tell stories. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, you know, one, one of the be, you know, best ways to understand the relationship between God and man, in, in a sense, God is the author and we're the characters, right? And, you know, God is outside of time and space, so he can do what he wants. Lewis says, technically speaking, um, the, God could, the past could be changed slightly by a prayer I'm doing in the present, because when God hears our prayers, he's hearing it in the eternal timeless now where he lives. So who knows, right? And think about it. I'm Shakespeare, and I've created all these wonderful characters, and I want to communicate with them. Ultimately, the only way I can do that is write myself into the story. God, mm -hmm. both the author and the character, he wrote himself into the story. Dante learned from that because Dante is the poet who created the Divine Comedy, but he's also the pilgrim that is the you know, protagonist that is going in the story. Yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that it would just show, and it, 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 this is something that I guess we could use, you know, as an appeal to the world is that it makes you question any story uh, or, or, or any view of the world that says that uh, ultimate reality or wherever it is that we came from is finally something that's impersonal hmm. because uh, you need personality. Uh, in order for uh, there to be a story. And so since we're so deeply impacted by stories and drawn to them and love telling them and listening to them, uh, it says something about, I, I think, the nature of uh, what is ultimate reality, where we came yeah. from. And it makes you question, uh, like you said, it makes you question evolutionary story, which is say that yeah. we're here just by accident, something completely impersonal. Well, we, we are living in a story that's like an Aristotelian plot. It has a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's going the, And the ultimate end is going to be good. Maybe bad mm -hmm. in the beginning. There will be a catastrophe at the end. Uh, the, way, the way the ancient Romans, the early church said it's a Felix culpa, a yeah. fall. Uh, the fall of man in and of itself is terrible. But it's good when it's viewed eschatologically in terms of history because it led to the coming of Christ. What do we call the day Jesus died? Good Friday. Good Friday. Have we lost our minds? That's the worst <laughs> day in history. Yeah. It's not good. But when viewed in terms of the meta narrative, it's good because it leads to Easter Sunday. Yeah. And Tolkien really understood that and wrote it into the very, very fabric and weave. Uh, I grew up Greek Orthodox, and on Easter, uh, we sing this song Christ is risen from the dead by death, trampling upon death. And to those of the tombs, he granted life. Now, it sounds mm. better in Greek because the Greek syntax says Christ is risen from the dead by death, death trampling. You could say that in Greek syntax. By death, death trampling. So in both words of death are right next to each other, but with a different ending. Um, mm. Wonderful. This, this, this is the magic, the eucatastrophe of, the, of Holy Week, that out of the death and crucifixion 
the, the, the head of the serpent is crushed and Christ raises. And then in him, we all rise and have resurrection bodies. So that, that's, yeah. that's, that's the happy ending. The, the consolation of the happy end is what, uh, by the way, if, if this is interesting, you must read a book that Tolkien wrote called On Fairy Story. It's really a sort of extended long essay, but you can buy book versions of it on fairy stories. And he works out all of the idea of eucatastrophe. And it's a great commentary on his own Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm ashamed to say I have not read it, even though I've heard so much about it. Oh, it's really good. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'm going to link it in the show notes. So anybody oh, listening and wants to find that it'll be there. Um, so we learn through, we learn virtue through stories and we can learn virtue through the stories of Lewis and Tolkien. One thing that uh, in their, in their training, but in their appreciation of stories, one thing they do is they integrate these uh, archetypes, these archetypes of themes and, and characters that help us the, to connect with and, and learn from. What are some of the archetypes that are worked into? I, I know there's a lot. So if you just want to choose some headline well, ones, I mean, you know, what are some of the ones that are worked into Lord of the Rings and Narnia? And what are some of the virtues they teach? I mean, what, one of the wonderful things is that, you know, Jesus is unique because he is prophet, priest, and king all at once. Now, in, in the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, those roles were kept separate. They wanted to be separate. You didn't bring them together. Jesus, the Messiah, is both king and priest and ultimately prophet as well, all of these. Now, what Tolkien does is he takes those three and he divides them amongst his three most messianic characters. So Gandalf, prophet, uh, Frodo, who bears the weight of the ring, is the priest, and of course, Aragorn is the king. And all three of them are Christ figures, Aaron. They all literally uh, um, experience a death and resurrection. I mean, it's most literal of Gandalf, who falls down with the Balray and, and literally dies. He's actually sent back by God, Ilubitar, as he calls him hmm. Aragorn. Um, now, uh, what, what, what about uh, uh, Aragorn? He goes through the paths of the dead, where he brings back the, the ghost armies. And uh. Quite literally dies in the paths of the dead and comes back alive. And then Frodo, even though Frodo was all the way up high when he meets Shilab, he's in a cave. Isn't it interesting? They're all in caves, right? Mm. By the way, that's something that sometimes the corn king does. He may go into a cave. He's the initiate facing something. He's killed. So, uh, uh, so, so with Frodo, he's in a cave, and Shelob, in a sense, kills him. Sam thinks he's dead. We all think he's dead. He's paralyzed, and then he's resurrected. So that that image that messianic figure and and um sam is also in a sense a priest because he's also a ring bearer and he carries it uh but that's wonderful the way he does that with those archetypes now excuse me my my favorite archetype uh is shasta in the horse and his boy and that's the archetype that's called the foundling now what that means is you know the little orphan that's put in the basket and left at the church door he's literally a foundling right yeah Uh, and the story of the foundling is in one way or another, the foundling is of some kind of royal blood, but he's separated and he grows up as a pauper until he discovers he's really a prince and he has a special destiny. The, the, the Romans believed that they were founded by uh, one of these uh, orphans that was Romulus and Remus. Uh, the Persians believed that they told a story of Cyrus that was like that. Uh, Moses is a kind of interesting inversion of that. Uh, uh, and, and almost all of the greatest heroes of Greek mythology are uh, that character, Theseus, Hercules, Perseus, and Jason. They're all foundlings in one way or another, raised 
as 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 you know paupers in one way or another. That's interesting. Their destiny, right? Yeah, uh, so that's the story of like Superman too. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, that's right. Superman, uh, Batman. Yeah, have to have to come back down and, and, and you know raised uh, and and ultimately, yeah. of course, the ultimate uh, foundling is Jesus, the Son of God, raised as a carpenter. Right? Mm. And that appeals to us, I think, at a very deep level. Prince Caspian has a little bit of an element of the foundling as well, but but Shasta is the perfect example. Other p- perfect examples are Harry Potter or Luke Skywalker or D'Artagnan, uh, all, all of these, these, these characters yeah. that we love, uh, Oliver Twist, uh, even in a weird well, way, uh, uh, Mowgli, raised by wolves. You oh, know? Have you seen... Raystoke. Have you seen The Mandalorian? Oh, yeah, that's right. I think about that. But yeah, that's right. When he, or you mean him? Because well, he, he Mando literally calls him the foundling. The foundling, that's true. Yeah, he's the child. Yep. Yeah. We all, we all still say baby, baby Yoda. He does have a name. Yeah. Gro- Grogu. 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 Yeah, I was trying to explain that to my kids the other night. And they're like, whoa, hold on. It's baby Yoda. That's baby Yoda. No. <laughs> yeah, but because uh, that's right where my mind went whenever you said foundling, because I'd never heard of it as a literary uh, it's, it's, uh, device it's before. Everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, even we have the story of Pecos Bill in America, raised by coyotes. Um, <laughs> tar- the, the full story of Tarzan is Greystoke. He's actually an aristocrat, Tarzan, but the son of. And he, you know, he grows up raised by apes. And then he goes back for a while. Then he goes back to the jungle and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But that story speaks. I mean, you, you, you can even say that about, but by the way, if you read very carefully, do you know who is an orphan in Lord of the Rings? Whose parents both drown. You can miss it because it's like real fast, like the first chapter. <laughs> Excuse me, it's Frodo. Frodo is a family. He's raised by Uncle Bilbo. Both his oh. parents, I drowned yeah. in the accident. Yeah, but it's so fast, you can easily miss that. But he's mm. a founder as well. Uh, and uh, again, I think that, because you know what? We're all founders. We're all sons and daughters of the king, right? Cast adrift like Robinson Crusoe, trying to put together the ruins uh, and, and come back. So we're all foundlings. And, and again, that, that, that's the story. I love to tell a story I read somewhere uh, of a lion cub, a lion cub who gets separated from the pride and ends up being raised by goats. And he thinks he's a goat. And then one day, a lion bounds in there and all the goats go scattering in terror. But for some reason, our little lion cub is not afraid. You don't understand why, but he's not afraid. And the lion cub comes over to him, and he roars, ah! And, and, and the little lion cub goes, <laughs> Get him to understand. And he, he, he gets him to look in the river, right? Simba, Simba. And it doesn't work. And finally, he kills something, and he gives a piece of raw meat to the little lion cub, and he eats it, and his eyes flame up, and he roars, and he realizes who we are. We are all lion cubs raised among goats all of us are and i think the stories like i said i mean the, the boy who lived harry potter right raised as, as an orphan right is his, his parents killed uh, and raised by muggles right who completely have no appreciation for who he is but again those special powers are there so that's wonderful i mean that's one that's one of the best uh, myths uh, in fairy tales i think mm. but there's also yeah. the cautionary myth that's that's often called the Byronic hero because Lord Byron, but it's basically the person who is not necessarily an evil person, but he ultimately tastes of forbidden fruit or breaks a taboo, and that cuts him off from humanity, and he can't go back to the farm. He might, in the beginning, want to do good things, like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, but he mm-hmm. takes the forbidden fruit and is cut off. That's what happens to Sauron, Saruman, Gan, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Gollum, 
they're, they're all the, 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 the Nazgul. They're all versions of that. So, so is Queen Jadis and Uncle Andrew in The Magician's Nephew. These are people, so is uh, the most famous maybe is Darth Vader, right? Who has sought after forbidden knowledge and has gotten it, but has found it to be sour and they cannot go back. They're like Dr. Faustus who sells the soul to the devil for forbidden knowledge. So mm. those, those are some of it. And uh, I have a chapter on that later on. Uh, the part you didn't get to. <laughs> <laughs> ironic hero. That's uh, why this all sounds new to me. <laughs> yeah, you, see, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, those kind of things. Yeah. Captain Nemo. Uh, they all fit under that uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, to a certain extent, fits that as well. Um, mm. Fascinating uh, archetype. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, you you have two sections, and we're running low on time, so we, we won't go deep mm. into this. We have two sections on the virtues you can learn, the classical virtues and then the, the, the theological virtues. If you just choose one of those, just choose one from one of those sections, um, and, and how we learn about that virtue in uh, these books. What, what is it? Let's see which one's a good one. The, uh, well, um, let, let's talk about wisdom because we talked a little bit about the dangers of cynicism and things like that. I think we did. I don't yeah. know. The, uh, so, so, okay. What does wisdom mean? Okay. Wisdom is not specialized knowledge. It doesn't mean being a rocket scientist. Wisdom understood classically is that beautiful King James word discernment. Someone who has wisdom can discern between right and wrong, good and evil, virtue and vice. That's why Solomon asked for wisdom because he was a young man and he said, how can I rule this people? I lack discernment. I can't be a good judge unless I understand. Now, in uh, the last battle, right? Remember there is the, 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 uh, the, the, the what do you call it? The, the stable. And once you go through the stable door, you basically die. Now, when the good characters go through the stable door, they find themselves in a restored Garden of Eden. But the dwarves who decide that the dwarves are for the dwarves, they give up on Ashland. They actually shoot the Narnian horses, which makes everybody hate them. Uh, and when they go through the door, they don't find themselves in a Garden of Eden. They find themselves in a dark, smelly, pokey little stable because they can't see beyond that. And the, the good characters see them and they don't say, well, come on, come out. It's fine. But you know what? None of their senses work. Their, 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 their sight, their smell, their touch, their hearing, it's all messed up. Nobody can convince them, right? Because modern day says wisdom is empiricism. You can't see it, smell it, taste it, touch it. It doesn't exist, right? But these are people who've given way to cynicism and they can no longer see it. And Aslan appears. And Lucy says, Aslan, isn't there something you can do for them? And Aslan roars and suddenly a feast is laid out in front of them. And at first they eat it, but it becomes clear they can't taste it. And then they start throwing it at each other and being afraid someone had better. And they smear it and, ah, and they finally give up. And Aslan says, you see, Lucy, they have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their mind, but they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. They chose yeah. cynicism. See, one thing that so angers me, Aaron, is we have this idea for a long time now, in, especially in grad school, that you know you're getting smarter and wiser because you're getting more cynical and skeptical and seeing through everything. Cynicism is the death of true wisdom. Wisdom necessitates wonder, humility, joy, a sense of awe, 
but we have completely thrown it on its head so that we think we know everything and we don't we're blind when if you see through everything then you're not seeing anything right you're blind lewis says it's nice that the window is see-through so you can see the garden on the other side but what if the garden is see-through as well to see through everything is not to see anything it's to be blind yeah. so yeah uh, and then quickly what about in uh, uh lord of the rings um i love the movies and the movies got most of the good lines in there but they missed one in the novel when uh when gandalf goes to visit saruman right remember he is saruman the white and he says hail saruman the white and he says i am no longer saruman the white i am saruman of many colors become a relativist right and gandalf says i preferred white 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 will do as a beginning the white cloth can be dyed the white light can be broken the white page can be written upon in which case gandalf retorts it is no longer white and he who breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom we use mm. a, a verse by a william wordsworth a romantic poet we murder to dissect we think that knowledge comes by cutting and cutting. This cynical age, this age of critical race theory and everything else that cuts and divides and divides. And we think that's bringing us closer to wisdom. It is not. It's kind of madness. True wisdom brings together. It synthesizes. It unites. It is love. What is love? The two into one. Love is a power that unites and brings together, not destroys. Who would have known this, Aaron? Okay. What's more powerful, an atom bomb or a hydrogen bomb? No, I don't know. An atom bomb is a fission bomb. It works by splitting the atom and exploding, right? A hydrogen bomb is a fusion bomb that works by fusing the atom. Now, I would think, well, if you thought that an atom could do anything, I would think that the splitting of the atom would cause more power. But actually, the fusion of the of an, in a hydrogen bomb is like 100 times more powerful, right? Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, sometimes it takes an atom bomb set off to give you the heat to cause a hydrogen bomb. That's why if we could find cold fusion, we would have no problem with any energy or anything, right? Uh, but what I'm getting at is that there's more power in the bringing together, in the unity. Christ is the two into one, fully man and fully God. Heaven is we will be fully ourselves, but we'll be fully in God at the same time. That is heaven. It's the two into one. It's the magic that is written through all of life. But all we want to do is dissect and cut and break down. And we think we're wise, but we are blinding ourselves. So that in The Magician's Nephew, when Aslan sings Narnia into being, kind of stole that from the Silmarillion, when he sings it into being, the good characters, it's the most beautiful sound they've ever heard. But the evil characters, the, the Mephistopheles ones, uh, Queen Jadis and Uncle Andrew, hate the music they put their finger in their ears they are there they find it painful to listen to so mm. he who breaks a thing to find out what it is has left the path of wisdom <laughs> mm, that's good so much more that i wish we could go oh, into we, we just talk about the surface but it's good yeah but uh huh. but hey that's why this book is there they say well, the way my book works it's it's four square four parts with four chapters each and every chapter talks about something from Narnia and something from Middle Earth. And mm -hmm. so the first four, the first section is called the road. What does it mean to be a pilgrim, to live on the road? What's the end of the road, the dangers of the road? Then the second part is the four classical virtues, courage, 
uh, wisdom, uh, uh, justice, and self-control. And then the third section is the, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. But I wanted four square, so I added friendship, because Lewis and Tolkien treated friendship almost as one of the highest Christian virtues. And then the last four chapters are things like vice and evil and what the nature of evil is, including those uh, Byronic heroes that I talked about before. So yeah. fun. Yeah, it's, it's been a while since. Do you know, when I wrote that, it was supposed to be uh, published this year, and then it got delayed a whole year, because if you remember, The Hobbit was delayed a whole year. Do you know The Hobbit was supposed to be uh, directed not by Peter Jackson. It was supposed to be directed by... Uh, 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 ah, what's his name? Guillermo del Toro, the guy who did the Hell huh. season, and he and he won the Oscar for The Shape of Water and Pan's Labyrinth. This is probably his best movie. Uh, he was going to do it for some reason. It got delayed, and he never did it. But I, I would like to have seen what he would have done. It would have been more fantasy fairy tale land, where Peter Jackson likes to go for realism, and I of course hmm. like Peter Jackson. But he would have published more strange or something, you know, like uh, <sighs> like Ghost Bride or something crazy like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, so. Good stuff. Yeah. Man, we made it through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, uh, I'll have the, like I said before, I'll have the book linked in the show notes so that uh, you guys who had your interest peaked by this conversation, there's uh, so much more to go into there and um, archetypes and virtues, vices, and so on. And so you guys will love it. Definitely go pick it up. Uh, Lou, just thank you so much for your time. Once again, I enjoyed this conversation and thanks for coming on Filter. Great to be on. Blessings to all. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the end.